I'm Richard, and welcome to Asatorx Podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of November 25th, 2013. Join us this week as we talk with novelist Martin Turnbull about the celebrated and much-lamented Garden of Allah. From its humble beginnings as a fixer-upper for silent screen star Ala Nazinova, to its halcyon days as clubhouse for the Hollywood smart set, to its demolition in 1959. We'll also visit with the Dorothy Parker Society's Adrian Crew to discuss the inimitable Mrs. Parker, her time at the Garden of Allah, her two marriages to Alan Campbell, and her abiding friendship with Algonquin Roundtable founder Robert Benchley. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us at our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine. This episode is for the week of November 25th, 2013. This week, we have our two guests are Martin Turnbull. Martin is author of the series Garden of Allah. That's about, of course, the famous now long-gone residency hotel for the Hollywood crowd. And we'll also be speaking with Adrian Cruz. She is president of the Los Angeles chapter of the Dorothy Parker Society, and she, of course, will be speaking about Dorothy Parker, and she's going to focus on Mrs. Parker's time at the Garden of Allah and her marriages, which we'll, 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 we'll stay to the light stuff this episode. Kim, I want you at this point to remind people about the Pishka. 
happy to do so. That's the digital tip jar, which is associated with this podcast. And we're always so grateful when our listeners wish to uh, throw a little something jingly into said tip jar. It helps us finance our adventures traveling across Southern California, looking for lovely people to talk to. Never obligatory, but always appreciated, as is your listenership. Kim, thank you so much. Let's... um. Shall we just jump into Closely Watch Trains? We have a lot to talk about. Oh my gosh, let's go. Okay, all right. So, first one up, just uh, uh, just letting people know, get it on your calendar. December 5, the City of Los Angeles, specifically Council District 14, is going to be having a meeting at the... Uh, chapter of the council offices for CD14 in Boyle Heights about the 6th Street Viaduct replacement project. So this is just going to be, I guess, the first time there's been a proper community meeting about this. Obviously, there were meetings with input about the the decision to to replace it. But this is the first of public meetings about now they have a design, what's going to happen. And Kim, do you want to sort of round out the uh, fill in the uh, the edges of this this enhancement and enrichment for the the viaduct en- enrichment isn't that what they give the big cats down at the cat house it, it is but I also think they want to give the bridge a bike path oh um, well I've, I've looked at the design uh, that that is the winning design for the new bridge it's it's really uh, an attempt to create a sort of iconic sculptural pathway across uh, the L.A. River. It's very wiggly. It's kind of noodly. It includes walkways um, above and below. I don't know if there's going to be a bike path. There probably is. There's always a bike path. But it it looks like um, a very, uh, shall we say, usable structure as opposed to a drivable structure. I don't know. Anytime there are changes to the L.A. River um, space and, and I guess, riverscape. I'm always just reminded of going to that incredible survival research labs performance in the early 80s and uh, watching them pull animals apart in the riverbed and people were trying to watch it for free from, I think it was the 4th Street Bridge. And um, because survival research labs are evil geniuses, they just decided, oh, no, we're not going to have people watching our show for free. We're going to spray the bridge down with butyl nitrate, which smells disgusting. And it worked. Okay, Kim. That's that's great. Well, that's that, what you wanted me to say, yeah, right? I, that, yeah. And we're gonna and you said it, so now we're done. Thank you so much. Let's talk about the Southwest Museum. Uh, you you sh- you sent along to me an interesting blog post about the notion of USC taking over the Southwest Museum. This is neither an endorsement or a rejection of this idea. Just we are we think about the Southwest Museum a lot. It was the city's first museum. It is very much in the news. A, a lot is going on there. We've done events there in the past. So I just I just want to keep uh, keep everyone up on the notion uh, of, of maybe someone else taking over from, from the Autry. Um, this is obviously coming out of the camp of one of the groups that is protesting the Autry's current use and um, residence in the structure. Indeed. And the notion of... Um a well-funded museum coming in and sort of becoming the big brother to this very important collection of, well, it's a world-class collection of American Indian artifacts and a very important cultural hub for the Arroyo and for early L.A. creativity. So I'd I'd really like to see something happen. It's pretty clear that the Autry's agenda, um, which, you know, it's probably better than the people in Northeast L.A. think it is, but it's probably not 
what they're going to ever want to see. You know, they're, they're never going to reopen the Southwest as a fully functioning institution, but someone could. So let's see if someone is out there. Great. Okay, and just another note, and we're gonna we're, we, we we've already reached out, and we're gonna we're gonna do proper interviews on this. But just just pointing out, uh, there are at least two sculptures uh, built of very temporary material of a Navajo soil chief and hemp. soil and hemp well, uh, of, of a Navajo chief. One is is on is uh, at Worden Place, which is basically. Uh, fourth, near, just near Fourth and Main, it's the site of the old uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs outreach building. Old Skid Row. Old. This is old, old Skid Row. There's another statue. It's off of Mulholland Drive. Um, this is raising consciousness not only about in Skid Row of of this this interesting part of, of Skid Row's history, which is never touched upon, but also calling out uh, the, no, the the issues around the Southwest Museum. Which which I find which I find very interesting, and we're gonna um, go ahead and we're gonna talk to the artists and the people behind this project, and roll up our sleeves and just get down and and, and down in in the hemp and the mud. Of course, by the time we talk to the artists, those pieces may be gone. We've had a little rain. Okay, well we're we're moving as fast as we can. Oh, Kim. that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. They're ephemeral by nature. Right. So just uh, so the Southwest is a closely watched train, and will continue to be. All right, Kim, I noticed that our friend Sandy is going to be involved in a St. Francis Dam disaster event coming up, which I I think is pretty neat. Yeah, I was happy to see one of our favorite L.A. history bloggers, Sandy Hammerlein, is now um, one of the field agents for the Obscura Society in L.A., which is a group we've worked with in the past. We, uh, I believe we had our Fonte tour yeah. synced up with their big Obscura day. They're um, always interested in going to offbeat places, especially places that are hard for the public to visit. And so they are working. Um, Sandy is spearheading this uh, group visit to... The St. Francis Dam disaster sites, including uh, interior tours of those DWP stations up there, which are very beautiful buildings. And um, I don't know if this is quite the right time of year to visit the dam disaster site. When we visited in the spring, we saw the most amazing little frogs um, up on the walk out there. The the old road has been uh, diverted. It's no longer a driving road. You walk on it. A lot of old streams have come up to the fore, and so the, the road is partially flooded. And at first I thought they were just little bugs, crickets or something, but they were actually incredibly tiny frogs. So I want to go up there again next year. I don't know if um, the urban adventurers of the Obscura Society will see tiny frogs. They may see large frogs, in which case I hope they will report back. And they'll also, of course, be going to the site of one of the largest, um, well, I guess it's not a natural disaster. It's a human-caused disaster in Southern California history, that horrible flood which killed, they say 450 people. No one knows how many people died. There were so many poor people living um, off the land in the canyons in the late 20s. And um, I, I've heard that they you know, have still been finding bodies up into recent times. And sometimes they think, oh, well, we're not identifying this body and it seems to be a late 20s death. We're just going to call it a damn death. It happens. Interesting. That'll be, uh, that'll be December 10. That's a, a Tuesday, I believe. So we'll, we'll include the link. Uh, sign up. It's, it's going to be great. San- Sandy's very gifted. Kim, I'm happy to say that the Redlands Conservancy is going to start giving walking tours of downtown Redlands. This, this is, is so this great. Is, this is a good thing. This is very good. Redlands is a very interesting and old neighborhood, and it's. Uh, I'm going to email the director next week and, and 
try and see if they can make some of them lava events just just to sort oh, of get right. raised yeah. you, you know just get get it on the lava calendar cuz people see that they do and i think that you know people there's a tendency to think of the inland empire as being just this sort of great swath of methamphetamine and pain but it's that's also that's not what i think at all well i know but that's the problem when you know neighborhoods suffer from economic blight uh, but they're still incredibly important historic spaces and raising the consciousness, especially in places where buildings get flipped a lot about yeah. historic preservation is so important. So I, I really admire the Redlands Conservancy for making this happen. And obviously we want to help shine a light on it. Kim, our, our two good friends were in the Huffington Post last week. Our, our friend Leslie Zemeckis interviewed Pepper Arvold. Pepper is, of course, Lillian Hunt's granddaughter. Lillian Hunt, of course, ran the Follies and the New Follies Theater, two very important downtown burlesque palaces. Leslie, of course, is an important historian in the burlesque scene, and she. Uh, this all came out of, out of their uh, connecting at the salon Leslie hosted last month, October, for, uh, for her talk on, on the history of burlesque. So just and leading into the talk that Pepper's giving right. at the November salon. Right. So, so it's just it's so nice to see all of this uh, cross contamination of of burlesque people. And I, th- I think the term is pollination. Uh, oh, it is. I know. Yes. But, but come on, we're talking about the follies. It's a little dirty, not a lot. So Pepper's talking this coming. Uh, no, Pepper. Yeah, just it's going to be great. So just the video will be online yeah, soon if you missed it'll, it. It'll, and it'll it's, be, we're so excited that this story is getting told. Growing up backstage as a little girl at the Follies on Main Street, there's only one person who can tell that story, and that's Pepper. That's right, Kim. The most important Los Angeles architect you've never heard of is oh, that I've never heard of John Parkinson. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, so. not anymore. I mean, he's getting a lot of press right. thanks to Stephen G's uh, Angel City Press book and all of these wonderful interviews and um, which, talks which, that he's been giving. Which Way LA did a very nice piece on Stephen's book, Iconic Vision, uh, John Parkinson, Los Angeles Architect. It's a great book. It's a great piece on Which Way LA. He is raising funds to finance the use of uh, archival, archival footage for the Parkinson documentary. So... Links are up. Go go listen in on the interview. Go drop in on the Indiegogo campaign. Maybe you can contribute a little something to that, Pishka. It's, it's a great cause. He's a great guy. And Parkinson is an amazing architect. And you, you've been in his buildings and you know them, whether you know it or not. Kim. Yes, Richard. We're done with Watch Trains. I want to get into just uh, events coming up. Is that okay? Uh-huh. Okay. This is really not an event per se, but it's... it's it's a milestone. I want you to talk about the subscription for your new novel. Okay, The Kept Girl is finally coming out in February, and The Kept Girl is my novel of the young Raymond Chandler in 1929, and it's fact-based. Basically, I had a true crime book I wanted to write about the Great Eleven cult, the murderous angel worshippers who uh, started out as taxi-dancing sirens on Main Street, just a wonderful, horrible group of ladies. But there wasn't quite enough there to actually satisfy my incredibly stringent, detail-oriented mind. And so uh, a girl's fancy turns to fiction. I've, I've actually written a novel. Um, it's gotten some wonderful advanced praise from folks like uh, John Button and Denise Hamilton and, and, and Matthew Spector and David Kippen. You can see that all on the website. And the way that we are funding the, the book 
interestingly enough, is sort of the way that this angel worshiping cult funded their work. It was your idea, Richard. The the angel worshippers uh, went around taking subscriptions for a very special book. I cannot provide you with what they promised. They promised that their book, which came directly from the angel Gabriel, would give you the secrets of all mineral wealth beneath the earth. That means oil and rubies and gold and, and platinum and what have you. I cannot give you that, but I can give you... Um, a very entertaining and somewhat horrifying story of 1929 L.A. Um, in a beautiful decorative slipcase, which is the special edition. Your name will be in the book, and you'll be invited to a special subscriber's appreciation party. And yes, we do have subscriptions for two now, if you have a sweetie you'd like to bring. It's only an extra ten bucks to bring your sweetie, but pretend it's more. It looks better. So... Um, the link is here. I'm really excited about what we're doing. We're, we're launching our press, Esoteric Inc., and we're starting it with a story that came out of uh, our crime blogs and our tours. So it's kind of cross-contamination, and I'm loving it. Okay, Kim, just a, a couple events to look forward to for December, which is, which is just now, just so much upon us in any second now. Okay, Dorothy Parker, Adrian Crew. Whom, whom we'll be interviewing for this podcast in minutes. In seconds. Mm, minutes? Actually, mm, like 20, because oh, we wow. interview Martin first. But soon. Okay. Adrian is, is, is hosting two events, one free, one not. Her first event, Thursday, December 12, is a cocktail party in honor of Dorothy Parker and a book release. Uh, Kevin Fitzpatrick, who's president of the New York chapter of the Dorothy Parker Society, has a cocktail book out inspired by Dorothy Parker. They will be at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. That is a free event. Registration is required. We are including the URL on the page for this podcast. So go sign up and go make that. Two days later, Saturday, December 14, Adrian and Kevin will give a bus tour of Dorothy Parker's West Hollywood. You okay? get on that it's, bus. It's going to be, we've, I'm, I'm, I'm vetting the route to make sure that the bus can make right turns because there are a couple couple places in West Hollywood that, that you can't make right turns on the bus, but I've got that, that. I think we've got all that covered. It's a great tour. West Hollywood, Beverly Hills. Um, it's it's going to be, yeah, this is this is a nice little tour. You should, you should sign up and buy your tickets. Adrian has done walking tours of F. Scott Fitzgerald's West Hollywood and Dorothy Parker's West Hollywood. And I think she's, she's giving a Fitzgerald tour again. It's good. a lot of good stuff going yeah. on. Yeah, so. Parker's in the air. And Adrian is is very gifted, very gifted individual. So just do what she tells you, and she's told me to tell you <laughs> to sign up for the cocktail, register for the cocktail party. It's and, free, and the drinks are free, at least one of them. Um, the okay, yes, cocktail party. Okay, the cocktail party is free. Uh, there will be a liquor sponsor, and as long as the martinis hold out, there will be free martinis. But don't don't get there an hour late and expect there to be free booze still. Or throw a fit like Dorothy Parker would. There you go. Kim, See you last event in December. Yes. Sunday, oh De- Sunday, December 29. <laughs> Can I just interject? I actually want you to set it up. Oh, I was going to interject, but instead I'll set it up. My, my husband is a genius, and he does things that no one else would dare to do. Um, we have already in the past on a very special bus tour with Mahad Ao, the White Witch of Los Angeles, taken people into the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis um, Star Sapphire Lodge. Lodge is the word I was looking for, not Star Sapphire, um, which is the local order of this 
initiatory group, which began with Aleister Crowley and in London and in Sicily, and then traveled to Pasadena through the brilliant rocket scientist, black magician, Jack Parsons, and has become uh, a very mysterious and wonderful part of Los Angeles spiritual lore. We've taken people on a spiritual bus tour into their lodge and participated in their great ritual, their great public ritual, the Gnostic Mass, but never before have we uh, brought such a thing to Broadway in downtown Los Angeles, but we will be for the last Lava Sunday Salon of the year. And Richard, I think this is truly inspired and um, deeply interesting. I really look forward to seeing who turns up and what they make of it. I think it's going to be a moment that we will remember for a long, long time. Thank you, Kim. So just, just to round it out, so the, the OTO, uh, the, the, the proper name is the Ordo Templi Orientis, which roughly translates into the Eastern Lodge of the Templars. Um, this is an esoteric school of thought founded by Aleister Crowley uh, in... 1939. And it is Crowley. We've been taught yeah, this by our friends at the OTO. Crowley, which rhymes with holy, not foully. At the time of, of, of Crowley's death, uh, which was in 1947, uh, Jack, the Agape Lodge in Pasadena, founded by Jack Parsons about 10 years earlier, was the only proper lodge operating outside of, of Crowley's residence in London. So this is, this is, is I think that's really interesting. Well, so basically Parsons not only got us to the moon, but he's, he's perpetuated Crowley's mysticism. That's really something. Yes. So the OTO is very interesting. We're going to be having, uh, so they're going to be bringing the, the Gnostic mass to the salon. The salon will be two parts. Part one will be maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, an introduction to the OTO, the law of Thelema, uh, a dis- a not not terribly in depth, but certainly touch on Jack Parsons' role in the Agape Lodge, which is obviously a non-trivial contribution, and then really uh, touch all the bases to then perform the Gnostic Mass, which is a central ritual for them, and it's all on the, it's all on the website. If you want to read more about it, we're very excited. So we encourage you. To, to join us. And also, we'd simply like to mention, they're the nicest people you could ever meet. I know there's a little bit of intimidation about the whole notion of esoteric groups, I'm not going to say cults and Crowley, but um, they've, they've never been less than totally welcoming and open to people who come to them with a, a fresh perspective and just a curiosity. No one will be forced to do anything they don't want to do, and I think you'll learn something about uh, spiritual opportunities in Los Angeles for young rocket scientists in the 1930s and today. Perfect. Thank you, Kim. So let's, let's get into the interview. So I'm going to interview Martin, Martin first. first, so I'm going to introduce Adrian first. Okay, so Adrian Crew. Uh, basically, a, whatever Adrian tells me to do, I, 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 I do. If she, if she emails me or calls and said, you should do this, I do it. I just... I just listened to Adrienne. She is. Uh, we're going to talk to her about Dorothy Parker. Uh, we're actually going to specifically focus on her first marriage. She married Alan Campbell twice. We're going to focus on their first marriage and uh, get a little little backstory uh, on the Garden of Allah and Robert Benchley and just just come up to speed on this this great halcyon time for screenwriters and and those that like to drink martinis. 24 hours a day in West Hollywood, what is now West Hollywood. Adrian, in addition to just being an incredibly intelligent and together individual, she's president of the Los Angeles chapter of the Dorothy Parker Society, hence 
are interviewing her. Also, she sits on the board of the Mame A. Clayton Library and Museum, which is a very interesting collection of African-American history, ephemera. It's, it's an interesting collection, and she's doing a lot of great work there. They've and been doing a lot of events and posting them to the Lava Calendar screenings, yeah. usually free. So she's just, just a super interesting person. You're going you're gonna to like her interview. I encourage you to... To hold on, and our first interview will be with Martin. Martin Turnbull is an author. He has written three novels. It is a uh, projected nine novel series. The series is called The Garden of Allah. So Martin is going to talk to us about The Garden of Allah, and we're going to get the the rise, the fall, the middle, the halcyon middle, uh, the rise being starting with Allah Nazimova, Allah being spelled A L L A. And and when, as as his narrative unfolds, you'll see how she lost control of the property, became a residency hotel, and the developers tacked on an H at the end. So the Garden of Allah became the Garden of Allah, as in there is no God but Allah, and there is no, there is only one God, and Allah is his name, Alu Akbar. So uh, that kind of Allah, and that doesn't get talked about explicitly in the podcast interview. So I just wanted to put that on the table that that an H is added. And also, if if you don't know about Allah Nazimova, you should um, go and do an image search on the old Google for pictures of her, and you'll you'll say, oh, no, this isn't Allah Nazimova. These are pictures of Lady Gaga. But no, (laughs) because Lady Gaga has been stealing her look. So she lives. Allah lives. Right. And and so, Martin, so we'll get the history of the garden. And then, of course, um, we're going to devote an entire separate interview to, to the narrative of Martin writing, coming to write series on the Garden of Allah, but just at the end he'll he'll briefly bring us up to speak because they're very good books. Martin has a, a nine-part series on the Garden. The first three are written, and he'll and the t- first two are published. This, the th- that's right. That's right. So we'll just we'll just get a, a brief smattering of his career as a writer. Certainly, this interview will will prove to you that anything he writes about the Garden of Allah is is going to be smack dab on the money. So let's. Take it away with my interview with Martin. Martin, Martin, I'm here with you. We're at Greenblatt's Deli. We are across the street from the former location of the Garden of Allah, and that's what we're going to talk about. So I want you to... Properly introduce yourself, and and in your introduction, please include your uh, credentials for speaking to us authoritatively on this important topic. Okay, my name is Martin Turnbull. I'm the author of a series of books, The Garden of Allah Novels, which takes place at the Garden of Allah Hotel, which was a residential hotel that opened in 27, um, just prior to the opening of the talkies. And it became a magnet for very creative people drawn to Hollywood to see to take their chances in creating a, a career for themselves perfect okay let's before we jump in and we're going to go through we'll, we'll we'll flesh out some major milestones all in azimova the residency hotel the, the the place is a residency hotel and its decline let's get us situated in case every in case everyone listening doesn't understand where Greenblatt's Deli is, we are talking about the southwest corner of the intersection of Sunset and Crescent Heights. This is the border of the city of Los Angeles and West Hollywood, which did not become a municipality until 1985. So, the time we're talking about 
the Garden of Allah sat in unincorporated Los Angeles County, which, as any good Raymond Chandler fans know, anytime you have an intersection of municipal and county jurisdiction for law enforcement, a lot of interesting things can happen. And just one more, just to set it up, uh, one more, across the street from the Garden of Allah on the uh, southeast corner of Crescent Heights and Sunset in the city of Los Angeles was Schwab's Drugstore. We, we don't necessarily have to gonna talk about Schwab's a lot, but I just want to make sure everyone understands just what an important inter- intersection was. And it's always good to meditate on Norma Desmond. It's, it's always, always. And Charles Brackett. So, okay, so let's get started. So let's start in 1919. Let's start with explaining who Allah Nazimova is. Who's my hero growing up, and 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 this this house she bought. Well, by um, by 1918, Allah had been a huge star on Broadway for about 10 years, very successful. So successful, a theatre had been named after her. And so naturally, by the late teens, Hollywood had caught them, caught her in their sights, and they made her a. Office she couldn't really refuse. It came from Louis B. Mayer when he was still running Metro Pictures, and he was offering her a reputed thirteen thousand dollars a week when Mary Pickford was earning ten thousand. So instantly she became the highest paid actress in the world, one of the most famous. So naturally she came out to Hollywood. Well, you know a Hollywood star needs a Hollywood mansion. So she took a look around and she found an empty mansion on this corner, and it is it suited her needs. And so she, she bought it in 1918, um, spent $65,000 doing it up in the way she wanted, added a pool that later became the famously infamous Garden of Allah pool. And so she set about establishing herself in Hollywood. Um, she had these Saturday salons where she would attract these, these fellow intellectuals, East Coast intellectuals and European immigrants, and they'd sit around this house and they would talk about art and letters and and philosophy and history. And so the house became a very uh, famous place where interesting people came to talk about interesting things. Um, her career was huge to begin with in Hollywood, and then she... She became a producer. She decided she wanted to make her own movies, which she did. Unfortunately, she didn't do a good job of it. She made a, a movie of Camille and one of Salome. Oh, let's let's. This the Salome film is interesting because she was forty-three, I think, when she decided to cast herself as Princess Salome, and I think she did a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she she was a, a typical of her era in that she. I think maybe she bought her own publicity a bit too much. She figured, well, if Louis B. Mayer can do it, and Zanuck can do it, and who else can do it, I can do it. Eh, not so easy. Those two movies were huge, hugely expensive and huge flops. And so by the mid-twenties, she found herself um, in deep financial straits. So along comes a couple of people by the name of Adams, and they said, you know what, you've got a three-and-a-half-acre property here. What if... We build a, a residential hotel. We build these two-story villas around your backyard, and that'll ensure a, an ongoing income for you, just in case this movie business doesn't quite work out for you, which sounded like a good idea, and it was, except that the Adamses were, were rip-off artists. And they, they did build the hotel. They did do what they said they would do, but took most of the m- money she had and left town. So Allah had a hotel, but it had cost her all of her money, and within a year, um, she was bankrupt, and she had to sell her shares in order just to stay afloat. 
And so by the time it opened in 1927, she was flat broke and living in one of the villas down at the back of what used to be her backyard. But because of her, the reputation she had built for the place, that in, this is where interesting people come to do interesting things and talk about interesting things, the place had a reputation. So as a hotel, it was ready-made with a huge reputation from coast to coast and was a, an enormous hit right from the start. So it attracted other creative people, largely actors and writers, and specifically Algonquin roundtable writers. Robert Benchley was the first person to come come uh, come west when he got a contract and um, because he was there when when Hollywood dangled the juicy carrot in front of Dorothy Parker well that's where she came and because Benchley and Parker were at the Garden of Valor as one by one as the Hollywood studios came to offer juicy contracts to, to the writers they came to stay where their friends stayed which was the Garden of Valor so it gradually it became a, a magnet for very creative people the actors, the writers, the musicians, directors. Um, it became one of those places where they were very much welcomed into a very communitive, um, a creative community because this was a residential hotel. So people weren't coming to check in at the Holiday Inn overnight like we might do that. They were coming here to serve a contract. Now, the contract might be 10 weeks or three months or three pictures. So people would be living here. So they wanted to be where they were comfortable, where their friends were. And so out of all this, a very... Um, supportive creative community that came and went it was a bit transient but transient in a long-term way i grew up around the garden of Allah. perfect okay let's let's just pick a year let's say prohibition's not over yet let's say it's 32 give us a typical day in the life of the garden of Allah on a saturday night I, I don't. I don't. I don't need literal anecdotes right. of, of, of what of what Benchley did on a certain day. But just I want. I want before we get into the decline, and we are going to quickly get into the decline. Uh, but before we get into the decline, I really want a, a halcyon Saturday in the Garden of Allah during Prohibition. Well, this was the era when studios worked. Um, five and a half days a, a week so they worked Saturday mornings as well and these people worked very hard, very long hours and it took a lot of effort to create these, these now classic movies so by the time they got to Saturday afternoon into Saturday night they'd spent a very long week working very hard and were ready to cut loose but these people being who they were they were very articulate very clever, very well educated, well read and so they were very very social people and they weren't people who were, you know, running the accounting department. They, they weren't big into, you know, following the rules, i.e. of prohibition. Um, and they were ready to party. So, especially on a Saturday night, although this could apply to almost any night, really, these people worked hard and they played hard. So, typically... I, 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 mean, I, I picked Saturday night because I know the work schedule. None of them had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning the next day, yeah. which, which was yeah. typical for screen stars, yeah. big stars. Yeah. Everyone was... Yeah, so very... very long days very, long. very so that's, I'm sorry but Saturday night yeah so typically if Robert Benchley was in town which he usually was and if he was in town he always stayed at the Garden of Allah the party would start there mainly because the party never really finished there he um he was the unofficial host of the Garden of Allah so if he was in town um there was a party going on so the first stop for anybody would be to stick their nose into Robert Benchley's villa to see what was going on. And usually there was um, any number of uh, Algonquin round table people and, and the periphery, um, 
maybe maybe Hemingway because the Algonquin writers were also part of the Lost Generation people. So if Hemingway was in town, quite quite often he'd be he'd be there because he liked to drink or two. And so it would be a a probably an impromptu party that just always happened to be happening at, at, at Robert Benchley's place. place. Um, they would call Schwab's around the corner because Schwab's would deliver anything to anyone at any time. And so they would they would order up snacks or eats or more booze or more ice from Schwab's and Schwab's is across the corner so it took literally two minutes to come and so out of probably what was an impromptu party um, word would get out oh there's a party on at Benchley's Villa so so word would get out around the around the Garden of Allah and more and more people would come and I would imagine eventually that spilled out of his villa uh, to the pool because the, the, the pool was situated in the middle of the Garden of Allah, so it was like a central to everybody. And there was pool furniture, and there was room for crowds, and so the party would progress until somebody started falling into the, falling into the pool, which was usually Tallulah Bankhead, because she I think she had a second sense when it came to parties. Oh, there's a party under the Garden of Allah, let me just pop on in there. So eventually she would end up in the pool, and if Tallulah's in the pool, somebody else is in the pool, and... And then suddenly it's 5 a.m. and it's Sunday morning and everybody drags themselves back to their villas or somebody else's villa. Because the thing about the Garden of Valor, which is in, makes it interesting and unique, is that it didn't have a house detective. Most, re- most respectable hotels had a house detective to make sure that those two checking into that room were married. Because if they weren't, no go. Well, there was no house detective at the Garden of Valor. There was nobody making sure that everybody was behaving themselves or, or at least checking into the villa with the person they're married to. Nobody was watching. Nobody cared. Nobody, really, nobody cared. And so they did as people will do, especially when they're drunk, especially when it's prohibition and they're not supposed to be drunk. Perfect. Perfect. Let's, um, let's get to decline and fall. Let's um, start with the day the Garden of Allah closed and then just look back a little bit, and then just sort of what what happens once the the dust and the spree of the demolition settled. Well, the end came in August of 1959, which um, the Garden of Valor in the 50s had gone through a rapid succession of ownership, and each new owner cared a little less, and each new owner did a little less work on it, and so by the late 50s, that particular site was becoming more and more commercially valuable and the Garden of Valor was being more and more neglected and therefore um, prime for, for selling and, and demolition and that did happen. It was sold in August of 59. They announced a closing night party and they were expecting 3,000 people to come. 10,000 people turned up. 10,000 people came. <laughs> that's, what, that's the figure I've read in several sources. That would, and I've seen photos, and there were a lot of people there. But what they did was they asked people to dress up as somebody who was big in 1927 when the Garden of Valor opened. So people came as, as Valentino and Clara Bow and, and all these, these people who were at the height of their careers in the 1920s, including Francis X. Bushman, who was, who was there, who didn't live at the Garden of Valor. He was there for the opening night party, and he was there for the closing night party. He just would have just come of himself, because in 1927, he was, he was a big deal. And so it was one of those legendary Hollywood parties that went for 24 hours, people in the pool, furniture in the pool. But what I love about it is that they found a spare wall that they projected some of Allah's movies up onto the wall. So Alan Azimovil was there at the closing night of the party. She died in 45, so she was long gone by then. 
So it was um, it was a typical LA ending to an iconic place. Unfortunately, that tends to be the history of it. Um, but it did go out with a bang, which I'm I'm very happy to to uh, to have seen. But you did it. So we're going to do. I want you briefly to talk about your own work on the garden, and I say briefly now because we're going to do a whole episode just on on your novels. But obviously, you've proven yourself to be a worthy historian. So, so tell us about the series that you've written on the Garden of All quickly, just to give us to bring us up to speed, and then we'll revisit. We'll come back and visit with you. We'll just get the whole the whole Gons Magilla then. What immediately struck me about the Garden of Allah when I found it was that it opened in 1927, the dawn of the talkies, and it closed in 59, which was really the dusk of the studio system. So I found that this place that was central in the social life of Hollywood was open year to year during what we now call as the golden years of Hollywood. And I thought, well, there's a way of telling the, the evolving history of, the, of Hollywood from its invention of talkies, technicolor, um, through to the, the war years of, of propaganda, through to the the, the, um, the encroach of television and the, the widescreen and all that sort of stuff. There's a way of telling the history through the eyes of the Garden of Allah or through the eyes of the people who lived at the Garden of Allah because these people contributed to that. They wrote these movies, they shot these movies, they directed these movies, they starred in these movies. And so I developed a... Um, my idea developed into a series of nine books that tells the history of the Garden of Allah and the history of Hollywood, which I see as a microcosm. To me, the Garden of Allah was a microcosm of the larger Hollywood experience during its golden years. Okay, good. I want you to tell us... Uh, we, we, we have three... You, you have three out. I want you to tell us their titles and just how, you or, how, how people can order them. Okay, the first book is The Garden on Sunset, which um, I have three fictional characters, and we follow their lives through, the, through, the, through these Hollywood years. So The Garden on Sunset opens the day of the opening of The Garden of Valor. There was a huge party to celebrate the opening of The Garden of Valor. It was you, you're on that? Huh? You're on that? Uh, 1927, yeah. So it opens at the opening day, uh, opening night party of the Garden of Allah. Then the second book is called The Trouble with Scarlet, which covers the years when the casting of Scarlet O'Hara was the biggest biggest story in Hollywood, which is the mid uh, late 30s. And the third book, which will be coming out in January of 2014, is Citizen Hollywood, which plays out against the controversy over Citizen Kane, where, where Orson Welles and, and William Randolph Hearst went head-to-head, and that was a huge controversy because it came, of, it came down to the crea- creatives versus the money men of Hollywood. And, of course, Garden of Allah people, being the creatives, were very much on, on Orson Welles' side. So it plays out that and takes us through to, well, really, to Pearl Harbor. Perfect. You did it. Good job. Take a sip of water. You deserve it. Um, I want to thank you. This was fantastic. This is one of my favorite places in Los Angeles, the garden. And we will have you back. Thank you. My name is Jenny Watts, and I'm here in San Marino at the Huntington Library. And you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Adrian, Adrian, I'm here with you. We're in Greenblatt's Deli, Crescent Heights and Sunset, just this side of the city of Los Angeles unincorporated Los Angeles County before 1983 unincorporated Los Angeles County beckoned across the street we're here to talk about Dorothy Parker and uh, 
all the trouble she got into in the 1930s. So before we get started, properly introduce yourself and give us your credentials as being a, a woman to talk about, the inimicable Mrs. Parker. Okay, thanks, Richard. Um, once again, I'm Adrienne Creer, and my main credential is I'm a huge Dorothy Parker fan and fanatic. I'm such a fanatic that I am the chapter, uh, the Los Angeles chapter of the Dorothy Parker Society. I head that up. Um, our main body is in New York, headed by Kevin Fitzpatrick. He started the Dorothy Parker Society about 12 years ago. And I do walking tours. I have such a passion for Los Angeles in the 20s and the 30s that I lead a Dorothy Parker walking tour as well as an F. Scott Fitzgerald walking tour. And I cover the areas all these different personalities and literary figures uh, lived and played when they lived in Los Angeles during the golden age of Hollywood. That was perfect. Okay, I've taken all your tours. I love them. And we're going to get back to bus tours and cocktail parties at the end of this interview because you've got some interesting stuff coming up. So we'll pull people's sleeve to that. So take a breath. You good? Feeling good? Okay. All right, good. All right. Uh, We agreed that we would talk about Dorothy Parker in the 30s, which falls pretty neatly into the bucket of her first marriage to Alan. So why don't you tell us, give us a date, give us a date of the marriage, and then tell us who Alan is, and then just start to pull us in. We're going to talk about the Garden of Allah, which used to be across the street. I think we're going to talk about this deli. We're certainly going to talk about Francis Scott Fitzgerald and Nathaniel West. So, I'm, so we have a lot of ground to cover, and let's let's get started with Alan. Okay. Well, let's time travel to 1934. Uh, Dorothy Parker had a great career in New York, but she had a second career in Hollywood as a screenwriter. She was a co-script writer with her husband, Alan uh, Alan Campbell. She met Alan uh, in the early 30s in New York, and they hit it off. Then they uh, reconnected when Dorothy had an assignment to write a film, and they came out to L.A., and they did so well, and they, got, they earned a couple of script-writing script contracts with different studios like MGM. So they took a house, and they drove out here with their dogs, and they stayed with Donald Ogden Stewart, Um, in Beverly Hills and Dorothy was just so happy that she and Alan went ahead and they got married and moved into a house in Beverly Hills on Cannon Drive. So she uh, was working on assignments with Alan. They had a pretty good working relationship. Alan did all the typing and uh, (laughs) Dorothy was the one that would kind of give out great dialogue while she sat in a corner with uh, with her knitting. That's how she's characterized, at least in a couple of films. Um, but Alan did a lot of the heavy lifting, but uh, Dorothy really kind of helped him out, and, and they kind of traded on her name and her reputation. But I think together they banged out some pretty good scripts, like um, A Star is Born, right. the very first iteration of that classic Hollywood tale. 
And, and, and do you want to throw out another? Can you throw out an, another? Um, another film that they worked on together. Let's see. Um, they they worked on um, Madam X and Dynamite for Cecil B. DeMille in Calvo City. Perfect. All right, so let's, um, before we get too deep into Alan Campbell and Mrs. Parker, I, I want, I don't want to forget what used to be across the street, the, the, the Garden of Allah. So maybe the, the, the early 1930s, what was happening across the street with Mrs. Parker and some of her, her friends that were not her husband. Well, um... The Garden of Allah is um, and was a hotel uh, residence, and it was sort of the Chateau Marmont of its day in the 30s. And it sat at Sunset and Crescent Heights, and um, across from it was the famous Schwab's drugstore. And because of the um, fact that it sat on the county of Los Angeles side, of the um, the divide between the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles meant that people could drink freely and carouse, and that's how the entertainment nightclub district arose down Sunset Strip. So this did not go unnoticed by heavy drinkers like Dorothy Parker and her best friend Robert Benchley. Robert Benchley first discovered the Garden of Alley and started staying out here in 1932. He then enticed Mrs. Parker and, and Alan Campbell to come, and they lived in the Garden of Allah off and on, um, especially during the 40s, when they had a bi-coastal residency. They would travel and live at the Garden of Allah, Allah and work on film projects all during the winter, and then as soon as spring arose, they would drive to their farmhouse in Bucks County and live there all the way until the next winter. Okay, but that's, that's getting us into marriage number two, which is another podcast, so let's, so, so let's stop there. And let me, um, for the listeners at home, clarify the line, the county line, what is now West Hollywood was unincorporated at Los Angeles County land until 1983 when the city of West Hollywood incorporated. What you're talking about is uh, the peculiarity that any place that's on a border of a jurisdiction of law enforcement kind of gets overlooked. So the Garden of Allah sat just the other side of the LAPD jurisdiction, just inside the sheriff's. This, 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 this created a little vacuum and the Sunset Strip was born out of that. So just just clarify that, and, and we'll, we'll do more podcasts on that. It's a very very interesting phenomenon, and uh, I know everyone in the garden was happy for that. So why don't you tell us a little bit? I know that, that we're still on marriage number one, but I, I, I don't think we can, we can leave this intersection without you talking more about her friend Robert and, 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 and all, all, the, all the fun they had. Uh, um, Robert Benchley um, was such a character. He was such an affable man that he basically would work at the studio or work um, at his uh, apartment in the Garden of Allah, and then around sunset, he would always come and make a martini, and the cocktail party would start. That meant that people from all over um, all their friends would gather at the Garden of Allah around cocktail hour around the pool, and Mr. Benchley would hold court, um, oftentimes just wearing uh, leather lederhosen, um, 
and he was just a card, you know, he'd be traipsing around, bare-assed, um, holding a martini glass, and he was also always attributed the quotation, let me get out of this, uh, let me get out of this uh, suit and into a dry martini. Right. I think that's one of his quotations, but he's a very urbane wit. And he and Mrs. Parker would just hold court and make jokes and tease people. Um, another resident of the Garden of Allah at that time in the 30s and 40s was F. Scott Fitzgerald. And Mr. Benchley would play a lot of pranks on F. Scott Fitzgerald. It must have been a really trying time for F. Scott Fitzgerald because amongst all the laughs, he was really trying to quit alcohol and um, work on his writing. So having Mr. Benchley and Mrs. Parker there who indulged themselves frequently um, and, and heavily must have been a real challenge. Perfect. Okay, I want to, uh, I wanna, I wanna keep us per our agreement on the first marriage to Alan Campbell. So I think at this point we need to start to look at, at what happened with the, uh, the, the end of marriage number one. So why don't you take us take us to the end of that and let's look back and see what would happen to Mrs. Parker and we'll we'll come back another time and we'll we'll look at their their reunion later so I think I want to keep in this bucket we talked about the, the, about marriage number one to Alan Campbell and and now since we've talked about marriage number one I want I want to wrap it up so we need to really get get into the dissolution of, of their first marriage, her marriage to Alan. But but I, I'm, I'm concerned that there might be some more gentlemen that we've not talked about yet. Do you, do you have just, I, I want to give you this chance to throw a couple more bones for us to chew on before we, 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 we get into the, the bitter end between Mrs. Parker and Mr. Campbell for marriage number one. Well, it's sort of apropos because... Uh, S.J. Perlman was an amazing humorist and writer who lived off and on at the Garden of Allah and the satellite residences that sprung up around it. He and his wife, who was uh, her name, was the sister of Nathaniel West. So S.J. Perlman and Nathaniel West were best friends, and S.J. Perlman married um, Nathaniel West's sister. So they were always together. They also purchased a farm in Bucks County, which attracted Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell. So these two couples were bi-coastal best friends, and in fact, they traded jobs, script-writing jobs. So, for example, if Laura and um, and S.J. Perlman were, they were a, a script-writing couple as well, if they had a job... Um, they would recommend that the Campbells, Dorothy and Alan, would finish the job if the West, uh, if if F.J. Perlman couldn't finish it. So they would say, hire these people from winter to uh, May, and then hire the uh, hire the Perlmans from May to next January. So that way, they kind of had a code job arrangement before it was ever popular. Job sharing. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I love it. And, of course, Esther Perlman is going to turn over in his grave for what I'm about to say, but, but he, he wrote a number of scripts for films that the Marx Brothers did. I know that, that he doesn't necessarily never wanted to be remembered for that, but I'm just trying to throw out there for people that are, that are not intimate with his work. 
everyone will be now. But if, just, you ever, if you ever get a chance to read his work, start with Westward Ho, and you will laugh and laugh and laugh. Perfect. Okay. So, but I want to I want to wrap up this podcast on Mrs. Parker. So I want to just sort of get some of the the, the, the bare bitter facts of, of, of the dissolution of, of Alan and, and Mrs. Parker's first marriage and, and give us a year and just sort of take us down into the dissolution. Well, um, driving back and forth between uh, coast really took a toll, I think, on their marriage and they were bickering constantly and just having to... Uh, be in each other's pockets all the time was not fun. They were constantly fighting, and Dorothy was drinking a lot and not writing much. In fact, S.J. Perlman um, wrote a letter back to their mutual friends saying he'd just seen Dorothy and Alan, and uh, he wondered why Alan didn't beat the living urine out of the woman by now. Um, That was a quote. By that time, Dorothy was drinking so much and the world was entering World War II around 1941, 1942, and part of Dorothy's arsenal of torturing Alan was um, saying and questioning his masculinity and questioning why he hasn't enlisted to fight the war. So after one particularly brutal fight, Alan went and enlisted and got uh, sent uh, across around the southeast um, for basic training camp and leaving and left Dorothy alone and got involved with other women and it got back to Dorothy and she was very irate and angry and they'd finally had enough of one another and they divorced. You're on the divorce? Uh, uh, um, yes. Um, Alan, um, around 1942. Perfect, perfect. Perfect, good. All right, well, listen, this is good. You did good work, okay? You, you did good work. Is there anything you want to... Cl- uh, there's so much more to talk about, and we'll come back. But is there anything you want to leave us with to meditate on? Mrs. Parker and her, her vast legacy? Well, I do want to make a correction. Actually, they divorced in 1947. Perfect. But uh, is, is there anything uh, you want to you want to leave us with to, to, to meditate on as we go on with our lives to think about Mrs. Parker? Um, just very quickly, I myself am African American and I know people are kind of surprised that I'm such a huge Dorothy Parker fan but um, I think it's actually j- just desserts and a nice uh, a, a sense of completion of the circle. Dorothy Parker at the end of her life was a huge supporter of um, civil rights and African American journey toward full uh, entitlements as uh, citizens and um, in fact when she passed away in her will she left her estate to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, She was very moved by his speech in 1964 and so it all turned out that after his death um, her estate actually is administered and owned by the NAACP. And so I kind of feel like, well, it's nice that, you know, I'm her supporter and I'm uh, a chapter president and kind of de facto spokesperson about Dorothy Parker. And um, I don't think you could notice that on a radio podcast, but um, I did want to take note of that. Perfect. Okay. We're not done. We've got, we've got a one last thing to do. We've got to plug your bus tour. And your cocktail party. 
Okay, this is very exciting. This is all coming up second week of December. It's just around the corner. Start with a cocktail party and, and lead up to the bus tour. We're going to have a really great time on Thursday, uh, December 12th at the LA Athletic Club because the LA chapter is welcoming the founder of the Dorothy Parker Society. His name is Kevin Fitzpatrick and he's written a new book called Under the Table, a Dorothy Parker Cocktail Guide that uh, goes over all the different cocktails with recipes that were enjoyed by Mrs. Parker and all of her friends in New York in the 1920s. Perfect. Okay, that's the cocktail party. And then bus tour is a couple days later? Yes. Then on Saturday, December 14th, uh, we're going to uh, co-host myself. I'm going to lead a bus tour along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, and we're going to go visit some of the houses and places that Dorothy Parker lived during her 30 years on and off while living in Los Angeles. Perfect. Okay. Your walking tours are great. I can't get on the bus. We're going to be giving a bus tour, but everyone should get on your bus. I want to thank you. Uh, I, I want the cocktail party, again, I want to remind people, free. We're going to open registration on November 12th, which should be after we air this podcast. So just go to the URL and register and... We'll, we'll see everyone on the bus or at the cocktail party. And Adrian, I want to thank you again. Thank you so much, Richard. I love talking about Dorothy Parker and her friends. My name is Scott Smith, and we're here at the Mildred E. Mathias Botanical Gardens at UCLA. And you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of November 25th, 2013. Our guests this week were Martin Turnbull. He's the author of the series Garden of Allah. And we also spoke with Adrienne Crew. She is president of the Los Angeles chapter of the Dorothy Parker Society. We spoke to both of them about the Garden of Allah and, in particular, Adrienne about Dorothy Parker. I want to thank everyone for having tuned in and listened to this episode. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. And Kim, if people want to reach out to us and give us feedback, how can they do that? And please don't forget to mention uh, the, this, the particulars for iTunes. Okie dokie. Well, they can send us an email at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com or they, which is to say you, gentle listener, can uh, go to esoteric.com and just send a note through the contact link. You can also come and see us at an esoteric bus adventure or at a lava event, many of which are free. You can also, if you're an iTunes listener, uh, find You Can't Eat the Sunshine on iTunes and give us some stars or a little short review. This helps people to find the podcast, especially people who are listening to multiple podcasts. Also, I would like to mention that someone tweeted at us this past week that they were hoping that their father would listen to our podcast because they thought it was right up his alley. And uh, the reason they thought it was up his alley is that we are uh, Hulhauser on steroids. So if you're thinking of something nice to say about us, you might say something like that. I miss Hule. Yeah. He he and I had lockers on the same row at the athletic club. You saw Hule naked regularly? Wow. No, I... Old men. (laughs) No, I... I, I, 
Okay, Kim. I'm going to talk about some upcoming... Thank you, Kim. Thank you for uh, telling us how to get feedback. I like feedback. (laughs) Kim, I'm going to let you talk about the first couple bus tours coming up because they are, for the most part, crime, and the last couple are literary. So I'll I'll wrap those up. Are you you ready? Are you ready to look ahead for the last week of November and... uh, into the end of December. I'm ready to prognosticate, but I'm going to start not with a crime tour, although it is a crime if you don't come. It's your birthday bus tour, Richard. We still have some room on this very special half-day excursion into the Antelope Valley on November 30th. There'll be cake. There'll be uh, Richard's student films from NYU. There'll be Richard's mother telling stories on on the mic and uh, wonderful excursions into the history of the desert lands outside of L.A. Uh, look on the website for all the great things we're going to be doing. It's really always so much fun to get together on this birthday bus. It's different every year. We charge less than a regular bus adventure, and yet we spend more time eight on the hours. road. Uh, eight hours. And uh, we're, we're wrapping up uh, a very special film to show on the ride back after it gets dark. I think you're going to yeah. enjoy it. You're yeah. going to enjoy it. So please come out with us. Then we get right back into the crime bus angle with Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice on December 7th. This is my um, social history and crime double feature, and it focuses on a lot of the murders and oddities that have taken place in the central core of Los Angeles back when it was the entertainment zone. And everyone was there, and everyone was making money and getting into trouble and sometimes getting killed. We also go into some really beautiful turn-of-the-century hotel interiors and talk about the history of these wonderful gathering spaces because they really were lobbies were gathering spaces. A lot of action happened in lobbies. Not always happy action. So if you're trying to wrap your head around what downtown L.A. was all about before all the people went away and they were gone for a long time, um, we're going to bring some of those old spaces to life. Our last tour of the year is Pasadena Confidential with Crimebo the Clown. And uh, this uh, definitely is an interesting tour to be given right after we connect with, uh, or right before, rather, we connect with the OTO at the last Lava Salon because we'll be talking about black magic and rocket science and Jack Parsons. That's a big part of the tour. Basically, Pasadena gets the crimes it deserves, and that means rocket scientists, eccentric millionaires, and perfect families killing each other. We know you'll love it. That's a favorite of mine. And, of course, the opportunity to walk out onto Suicide Bridge with Crime by the Clown is something every Angelina should do. That's going to end the year, except for that Lava Sunday Salon. Um, We begin the year, as we always do, with The Real Black Dahlia. This is our most popular crime bus tour, and it is also, we schedule it early in the year because we like to give this tour for the first time um, in any calendar year around the anniversary of when Elizabeth Short was kidnapped, probably from downtown L.A. She was seen at the Biltmore Hotel and then walking south on Olive Street. She disappeared for a week, and when she was found, she was cut in half and abandoned in a vacant lot in Lamert Park. Um, the tour is about walking in her footsteps while she was still alive in downtown L.A. and Hollywood a little bit. She was just one of thousands of transient lost souls in that post-war era, and it's... Um, it's a pretty sad tour to give in January, but I think a powerful one, and we, we would love to have you join us. I'm going to pass the mic over to Richard, because then we're getting into the literary series. Okay, we'll just we'll, uh, we'll round out January at that point. So, I have three tours for the rest of January. The Chandler tour, the Bukowski tour, and the Bertha Noir tour. Uh, Chandler and Bertha Noir really sandwich those three. They're both very much concerned with the hard-boiled school of American letters, and how it created the genre film noir. 
uh, for, on the Raymond Chandler tour. We'll, we'll look at that through his work and his time in the studios and his role in scripting the novel Double Indemnity into the film with Billy Wilder on the Birth of Noir tour, which is the last tour in January, Sunday, Saturday, January 25th. We'll talk about Jamie Kane, the author of the novel Double Indemnity, and his role in the writing of the novel and his work his tangential work with the film and his work in the film industry and, and his writing that, that got tempered through all of that incredible pain and suffering and, and, and banging your head against the wall that, that w- was in his Hollywood. In between those two tours is, of course, the Charles Bukowski tour, which, which is its own hard-boiled celebration of East Fifth Street and East Hollywood. So I encourage you, to get on the bus. It's, it's, it, it's always entertaining. And as always, as we must inevitably at every podcast come to this time, I want to remind you, I want to, th- I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening. I, re- I want to remind you to keep listening. And I want to tell you, you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. Lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.